This is Ader Nabetter. My name is Avi Singh. I'm remotely here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? On this episode of Ader Nabetter, we are joined by Adnan Khan, the co-founder and executive director of Restore Justice. Adnan is a uh, advocate uh, for people who are currently and formerly incarcerated and has worked to advance restorative justice principles and uh, justice uh, throughout our state and set a model for our country. Adnan, welcome to Ader and a Better. Thank you, man. I, I never thought that uh, I would hear that sentence, welcome to Ader and a Better, um, just knowing <laughs> my past and my history. But I, this one feels so welcoming and comfortable and not scary. So thank you both for having me, man, for real. Yeah, welcome, Adnan. Um, you know, it's it's crazy because I feel like we, I know you because we are connected on all the social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and we've messaged, but we actually haven't physically met. And then we had a video chat last night, so it's good to actually see your face and we're, we're recording right now for the first time in a um, remote setting. Avi and I are actually physically apart for the first time. And then how does that again. feel uh, for oh. both? I, can, I, can I do the, uh, a quick question before? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, how does that know. feel to be? We talk about late night love line, right? It's like 930 p.m. For parents, <laughs> right? For parents, this is pretty late. So how does it feel, Sajid, to be away from Avi like this? Honestly, it's, it, I do miss him. I do miss the, the proximity. Uh, we, we talk about proximity and intimacy. <laughs> I do miss being next to Avi, um, feeling him close, feeling his breath, uh, his energy. <laughs> Is COVID breath? That's too oh. close, man. Yeah, I mean, for the listeners, the reason we're doing this remotely, obviously, is because it's what what day is it? I've lost track of days. March eighteenth, and it's we're in full quarantine, COVID nineteen shutdown mode. So each of us are uh, recording this from our respective locations. I'm in San Jose, Avi's in the South Bay, also, and then uh, Adnan, you're in LA, right? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. So we're each in our hoodies, and we're each at home. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, nice to have this conversation. Um, yeah, yeah I feel fine about it. Uh, Sajid, I, <laughs> I prefer all of our interactions to be separated through, uh, through screens. Is this the new, <laughs> this the is... new model for the pod, for the pod? Um, what's cool about, uh, Adnan, I mean, I want to tell our listeners is the other thing is, you know, I, I felt like I had known him and then I realized that I had actually heard his voice before I had heard him yesterday. And the reason is because... I had listened to the Ear Hustle podcast, and which is really surreal that we're having this conversation now just because a couple of years ago, Adnan, you were incarcerated as San Quentin and you were being profiled on the Ear Hustle podcast sharing uh, your experiences and your stories. I, the episode I remember was you were being interviewed about um, being visited by your mom at San Quentin. Is that right? Uh, that No, uh, Solano. But it was Solano. about 10 years into my incarceration, yeah. Yeah, and so you were sharing that story on Ear Hustle, um, and I remember listening to it, and then here you are now, we'll, we'll get into it in a minute, uh, now home in L.A. and being able to join us on the pod, it's it's pretty incredible. I was going to say one of the in, uh, interesting things about what you're talking about, Ear Hustle and Erline, just earlier today, man, we were both on a phone call, um, and we both said, how weird is it to do a quarantine slash lockdown in prison? And then come out and do a quarantine slash lockdown free. Um, you, would you did you ever think about? It? We were kind of laughing about it and one, uh, you know, in wonder of like this is crazy. So, um, Anand, you know, just for our for those of our listeners that don't know you, um, you are Bay Area born and raised. I'm assuming is that right? Yep. And you're a Muslim, uh, South Asian American. And yep. uh, for better or worse, you were incarcerated uh, from ages age 18 and 2003 until 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and for, uh, to answer your question about better or worse, I think worse. Yeah. Mm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the, the background of your incarceration and then more importantly, um, your, uh, what prompted you to get released in 2019? Yeah, so um, just, just like bullet pointing a little bit about my history. Of course, I come from immigrant parents. Um, uh, my parents divorced when I was eight years old. My mother remarried when I was 12, um, and I had an abusive stepfather. Um, 
by the age of 17, I always like to just kind of cut to the chase and say by the age of 17, I was parentless, homeless, and a high school dropout. And one night, uh, I'm in a room with one of my friends, and he says, hey, let's, uh, we know this guy, and take a $1,000 worth of weed in a snatch and grab. Like, once he hands it to you, run into a car, we'll call up a driver, and the driver would drive off. So impulsively and immediately, I, I agreed for the snatch and grab. I felt like it was easy. No guns, knives, or weapons were to be used. I knew it was wrong. I know still that it is wrong, but I still did it. Um, I wasn't thinking about consequences. And so when this young man came down, uh, he handed me the weed. And my co-defendant, who I didn't know you know this term at that time, co-defendant, who was a getaway driver, a guy I did not know. He was just called from my other friend to be the getaway driver. It, it appeared to me that they were fighting. He pulled them out of the car. And the next day, we were arrested. And I was charged with robbery and murder. And so I'm sitting in a detective room and couldn't understand, like, why am I being charged with robbery and murder? Uh, this is wrong. And that's when I found out that my co-defendant, who was bipolar, I found out he was bipolar, schizophrenic, wasn't taking his medication. He was 21 years old and had severe mental health struggles. And uh, apparently, he was carrying a concealed knife because of his paranoia. And he unfortunately took the life of that young man. And um, I just couldn't believe it that took place, that a young man had lost his life um, and that I was remotely or involved in it. But then I learned about the felony murder rule and I was booked and charged into the, into the jail. And I learned about the felony murder rule, which said that if you're involved in a felony, in my case, was it, uh, it was a robbery, that I was equally guilty of the murder. And so for example, if, when I went to trial, um, I was not on trial for a murder I was on trial for an intent to commit a robbery. And the jury found me guilty of that. I am guilty of that. I was guilty of that. And once the jury did find me guilty of an intent to commit a robbery, uh, they went home. Their job was done. They went home to their families. And the next phase was the judge's phase. And the judge had to sentence me a mandatory 25 years to life. Mm. Um, and so the rest, the rest of my incarceration began. My life sentence began, maximum security prisons and um, you know, long story short, I ended up serving 16 years, but during my incarceration, I was very fortunate to go to a lower level prison and, um, you know, meeting other advocates and activists and volunteers that were coming into the prison. I co-founded and started a nonprofit organization while behind bars called Restore Justice. And from that um, kind of kicked off this piece of legislation that ended up being Senate Bill 1437. And that's how I ended up getting out uh, a year ago in January of 2019 under that bill, Senate Bill 1437. And so I know that's a, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but, to, but during my 16 years, I've seen tons of lockdowns, but I've seen a, quite a few quarantines and medical scares or hazards as well. And I think that's, you know, given the situation now um, and just my experiences, I just really appreciate you bringing me on and allowing me to kind of share the experience with you and the public in yeah. relation to my incarceration. Something we didn't kind of mention at the top was, you know, we've all been kind of messaging for some time, you know, when we're going to come on, when we're going to talk about restorative justice, when we're going to talk about 1437. And this COVID-19 uh, kind of forced us to jump together so we can talk about your experiences so folks can have some perspective uh, or share your perspective on what this sort of crisis could be like from the perspective of people who are incarcerated. And uh, so we're not normally so responsive to what's happening in the world, but we're trying to be. Uh, and, um, and so this is like the, you know, our kind of first emergency pod. And we're definitely going to talk more about 1437 and about where it should go around the country and where it needs to go in California. But could you, um, you know, you know, just tell us as, as you're listening or reading the news or, you know, hearing people talk or going to the grocery store or whatever you're seeing, you know, what, what are the kind of initial thoughts that come to mind about people who are currently incarcerated in prisons in California or in other prisons that you've learned about through your work? Um, severe, um, intense fear. That, that's like the most simplest way and direct way I can describe it. Um, and that's layered in, in anxiety and helplessness as well. And the reason I say that, man, is because just understanding how the system is set up and, and that we are talking about prisons, not hospitals. And so further, we're talking about uh, infrastructure of an institution, right? And so what fears me the most is 
prisons, the infrastructure of prisons is punishment and everything that's administered and programs that are ran and, and how people are dealt with is under the um, understanding of safety and security, quote unquote. And so that trumps any um, hospital or medical response, even though prisons have hospitals in them, um, prisons have doctors and nurses. Um, as you know, out here, there's a shortage of them already. Um, so you can expect, expect that to be um, a bigger sort shortage inside the system. And so what fears me the most and scares me and gives me so much anxiety and this feeling of helplessness is, God forbid, what, it, what is to come. I hope not, but what is to come that we are not ready at all um, to battle what is, what is hopefully not, but what is to come. What, what, do you, what do you fear most in terms of what's to come? Is it the fear of this uh, virus entering into uh, the prison system and then essentially leading to an outbreak on the inside? Um, so yes, leading, yes, entering the prison system, and I'm saying entering, but without any factual knowledge, I, I like to say it's already entered the prison entered, population. Right. Right. Um, and the reason I say that, and again, like I said, I don't have any evidence or any type of proof for that. But the reason I say that is because in Cal, this is just California alone. We have 120,000 people incarcerated in California state prisons. I'm not counting jails, right? Um, and there are 60,000 plus staff that come in and out of that prison. And prisons, as you well know, are 24/7, right? They don't they don't have days off, right? They Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, uh, any type of crises, prisons are running, and which means people are coming in and out of that prison that work there. They have to have to work there, and so. 60,000 staff, 120,000 incarcerated people, 35 prisons across California, uh, Oregon border, Mexico border, uh, you know, coast, it's just, they're all over. It's very difficult for me to believe that just following the trends of China, Italy, and then across the nation, it's very difficult for me to believe that, that COVID-19 has not entered our prison system yet. So the fear comes in, uh, and there's a couple of things that I want to kind of like, like break down. Um, and kind of what happens and, and what takes place. So the so one thing I want to say is that maybe that COVID-19 is in there and we don't know about it because people that are incarcerated are not coming uh, out saying that I am I am uh, feeling sick or I'm feeling um, in pain or whatever, whatever the symptoms are. Um, and then on top of that, we don't even know about the symptoms, right? A lot of people are not having symptoms and, and have co are carriers. But the, the reason I say that is because in prison, if there's any type of virus or sickness going around, um, the immediate response, if you check into medical and you, you have a virus, the immediate response is you're, you're sent to solitary confinement, wow. right? You're sent to what we're called the hole. And, and I always under, understood in my entire 16 years of my incarceration that, and, and I'm not, and just to be fair, I'm not talking about sniffles and having a cough and having like a minor flu. Like, I'm not talking about that. You're not gonna get sent to the hole for that. But if there's something like this happening, like, you know, H1N1, the swine flu, the, um, I forgot a couple of other ones that happened a few uh, last five years, uh, at least in the Bay Area. Um, if you turn yourself in, as we like to say, to medical, you will get sent to solitary confinement. And once you're in solitary confinement, the rules are not modified for you if you're there for disciplinary reasons or if you're there for medical reasons. Um, because of, even for officers, they can work overtime in a general population building uh, I'm sorry, they could work uh, in a regular time in a general population building. And let's just say they, they, they choose to do overtime and go do overtime in the solitary confinement. They can't bring those, they can't cross those rules, right? As soon as you enter that solitary confinement building, whatever rules apply as soon as you enter that door will apply. So it does not matter if you're there for um, uh, quarantine reasons, sickness reasons, or there for disciplinary reasons. Um, and so for me, it's like, People and I personally was afraid of being of, of being sick and being punished for being sick. Right. And because I didn't want to be punished for being sick, the last thing I wanted to do was be away from myself, away from my belongings, my stamps, my writing materials, my TV, uh, my canteen, my hygiene, my soap. You know, like instead of doing that, I, I'm not checking into medical. I'm gonna stay inside um, myself and just like beast it out, as we used to say, right? So a little example of that is one of the, the, uh, the harshest um, sickness that I've ever had, not just in my 16 years incarcerated, but in my entire life. Um, it was, it was a, during my time in San Quentin a few years back, 
And I, till this day, I don't know what I had contracted, how, why, what, but all I know is that I was in extreme excruciating pain. I was, uh, I had hot and cold flashes. There aren't any thermometers available unless we go to medical for us. So I don't know what my temperature was, but I know it was very high. Um, so um, I, I was shivering relentlessly. I remember um, I couldn't move an inch to the right or left without excruciating pain. And I didn't have an appetite to eat, so I didn't eat anything. Um, plus, I, didn't, I don't trust the food that the prison provides as nutrition, for spec regardless if you're sick or not, but especially if you're sick. Um, so all I did, my, my solution or my personal um, health care that I, I took into my own hand was um, drink water from the sink in my cell um, in San Quentin. That's been around since 1852, mind you. And, and drink water from my sink in my cell and, and rest. And so I did that for three, four days, um, just stayed there, didn't go anywhere, and then brought myself back to health. And, and for me, the privilege of being relatively younger than some of my OGs and my older uh, mentors and my other uh, friends that are in there, uh, I had the privilege of being young and maybe I was able to do that. But my point is that I was, I'd rather stay on my, in my cell, drink water from my sink for three, four days, shiver relentlessly, have excruciating pains, and go to medical and seek and try to seek help because I know that I will be punished for being sick. So what's what's the, I mean, and as far as you know, that's still the kind of the working order is that people that are sick are essentially treated like pariahs and are, are uh, isolated in that way and in solitary confinement as opposed to being medically isolated and, get, and afforded uh, regular treatment and, and care. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the norm. Um, and, and I will say because if you if you say medically isolated, right, they, the hospitals don't have the beds for a, a prison uh, for people in prison who get sick, um, go to a, a hospital bed, right, for a quarantine um, or, or to, you know, and, and I and I completely understand the idea of, of separating people kind of like we're doing right now, social distancing and, and um, you know, working from home for those who can. That, that cannot apply in prison because the hospitals are not built like that. Again, it, it's a prison we're talking about, not hospitals. Um, so that stuff does still occur inside. Excuse me. And I think the fear is um, it, when you talk about numbers now and you add tons and tons of numbers of, of, of in mass incarceration we're talking about, if people turn themselves in, like there, there aren't any, is any bed space or any program or any, any type, anything set up in the facility to um, treat you besides isolate you and isolation means solitary confinement. the decision when you're really sick uh, to not seek medical care uh, what you know you talked about the kind of philosophy of punishment the philosophy of isolation but from your perspective so you're you know under you know if you if you were to situate yourself now kind of what would the fears be with respect to COVID so you know you know that it's really dangerous you know it can spread to the older uh, kind of uh, people who are also with you, um, do you think that it's especially pressing or having experienced other significant health scares? With, you know, just uh, Is it just the psychological harm of being in isolation? Is it the being away from your belongings, like you described? Like how, would you, how do you think folks are going to have to strike that balance uh, currently? Yeah, I, I think all, um, all of those things that you mentioned are, are a lot of the fears for a lot of people inside of being in isolation away from your family, especially in times of sickness, right? When we talk about hospitals, I mean, the word hospitality, the word hospital isn't hospitality and prisons don't um, give you hospitality. Um, 
And so when you talk about like in the, in reference to COVID, I, me in this situation, if I was still incarcerated, I would absolutely sacrifice going through the whole going to isolation because I wouldn't want to get the other population sick, right? But that's just me. And imagine, and we know how exponentially COVID grows and, and, and rapidly how it expands. It, that's one person. The second person, third person, fourth, fifth, hundredth person, like they just don't have the bed space for that, right? Solitary or not, like there's no bed space for that. Um, and so, so for me, as far as the individual, like would I, would I um, sacrifice going to the hole? I absolutely would. But I will say that I, I had a call yesterday morning from a young man, he's 25 years old in San Quentin, and he lives in the dorm setting, right? And his biggest concern, I said, man, what's your biggest fear, man? He says, look, man, I'm 25. He runs like three, four miles every day. He has a very good immune system. He doesn't have any medical problems or any types of medical scares. And and his biggest concern was, I want to go to canteen. I'm afraid if we go on quarantine, that's another thing I wanted to bring up, of when quarantines actually happen, right? When the entire facility goes on quarantine, um, that, that, that again, the approaches of punishment, um, the rules of punishment, still apply and are still administered and so when we go on quarantine in prison people do not um are not allowed to go to canteen and canteen for those who don't know is like commissary um if you if you have money on your prison account you can go to um literally walk to a place you have there's different rules there but and, and get staples of like rice and beans and chips and candies um and on top of that um the more importantly it's not just food it's it's hygiene items right it's toothpaste it's soap is deodorant. You're only allowed, issued, I mean, one state-made, state-prison-made um, soap. I'm not sure if it's antibacterial or not. And one roll of toilet paper a week. You're issued that by corrections. In the canteen, they, they you can buy extra soap, like brand-name soaps, right? Um, you can buy, there's no there's no hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer by the way, in prison. That, that, that people can make alcohol out of that. But when you when you go on these quarantines, you you are not allowed to go to the canteen. Canteen is shut down. The privilege of canteen is taken away from you. Phone calls can be taken away from you um, because of the quarantine. So so people don't want are afraid to go on quarantine. But what they want to do more so is prepare. And most people's mm. concern right now, the 25 year old concern, right? I mean, we're we're doing it right now. I see all these pictures of people going to grocery stores and things are just gone. Shelves are completely empty, right? So we're doing that right now, and we have the power to get in our car or even walk to the grocery store and get whatever we want if it's available, right? Imagine if we, they told you you cannot even go to a grocery store. You're not allowed to get soap. You're not allowed to get hand sanitizer. And you're just stuck with what you have. And, and you're stuck in your bathroom without your phone or your laptop in your bathroom. And you have one, one soap that you don't think is antibacterial. So most people want to stock that bathroom up, right? Want to stock it up with soap and food and, and whatnot. And so this 25-year-old that I talked to that um, he lives in a dorm setting, and he says, all I care about, man, is I want to get my canteen. I don't know how long this is going to last. I just want my canteen. The truth is, if I get sick, I'm going to beat it. But I live in a dorm, man. There's hundreds of people around me. There's OGs around me. I could just stay on my bunk all day. Um, but, you know, I can't say people won't get sick. So so having said that, I think – yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, um, you know, about this dorm setting. We're being told, you know, we're under – a uh, uh, shelter in place order and the reason for that is uh, you know to kind of a public health response to keep a minimum of six feet distance to engage in 20 seconds of hand washing you know to uh, frequently wash hands to avoid contact with other individuals can you tell us about kind of what the life of somebody that 25 year old in the dorm is with respect to uh, the social distancing directives that people have been given and that are the justifications for current shelter-in-place orders? Yeah, is it even possible to do that in the prison? Um, I, I do not think that in, in the prison system and, and specifically in a dorm setting that's possible to do because of how jam-packed. Again, we're talking about mass incarceration. We're talking about small space, like architectural, you know, uh, um, acre-wise. Like, we're talking about small spaces. The cells are The cells alone are four feet by nine feet in San Quentin, right? Four feet wide, nine feet long, um, and they're bars. And so four, five feet away is your neighbor. On one side, five feet away is your neighbor. On the other side, yes, there's concrete walls, but in front of you are bars and where I could put my hand through and, and whatnot. So in a dorm setting, you are your bunk is right there. You share it with someone else. And then right in front of you, maybe like five, five feet away, six feet away, 
there's another bunk, right, with a couple more people. And then behind you, there are a couple more bunks. And when you talk about washing your hands, Avi, and going to, um, you know, one of the, I don't even want to say an advantage of living in a cell is having a sink in your cell, which is you jump down to your bunk, walk two, three steps, there's a sink there for you to wash your hands, right? In a dorm, you have to walk through the building to go to the toilets and go and go to and communal, by the way, right? Um, there aren't private stalls. It's like literally imagine 10 toilets right there in front of you, wide open. Or you got right? to in front of everybody and everybody yeah. and next to people in front of everyone and next to people. And then so washing hands, you're sharing the same sink. You're sharing, you're sharing the same, um, you know, walking to that area. So I don't know how social distancing, um, staying six feet away in, in closed quarters is, is, is a realistic solution. What I'm hearing from you, Adnan, is just this corona uh, pandemic, it's it's creating or is going to create essentially a situation of inhumanity on top of inhumanity. Because everything you're describing in terms of like the setup already as it exists in the prison system, in terms of the way people are housed, they're accessed or limited or non-access to things, basic things like water and soap and and basic amenities uh, that any human being should have. Um, and what I'm hearing from you is that that's already inhumane as it is. And then you're adding this other layer of where if, if there's a quarantine that there's this extra layer of inhumanity. And so it's just like exponential inhumanity um, that's, that's at stake at the moment. Does that sound fair to you? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And when we talk about inhumanity, like, you know, if we just flush that out a little bit, what, what, what are we, you know, what are we talking about? Meaning, we're not caring about human life, right? And we are objectifying or, or making people less than. And, and then we go into, we can, it's easier for us to access um, denying people things, right? And so when we talk about inhumanity, that they're less than humans, um, that, uh, they don't deserve uh, hand sanitizer, they don't deserve soap, they don't, you know, that, okay, that's one thing. I don't care what, what side of the, the, the movement, the justice reform movement you stand on. It, if you don't do that for people who are incarcerated, right? We have to remember staff work in these facilities. And I'm, when I was incarcerated, I was serving a life sentence. I was not coming outside to, to visit you, uh, Sajid or Avi, right? Was I? Absolutely not. If, if you were able to visit, uh, you would have to come to me. So they've stopped that. So the only community, the, the, the people that are coming in are, are, and I feel terrible. This is another layer. It's not like I, I want, you know, if I'm talking about equality and humanity for me, I feel the same way for correctional officers that work there. Uh, you know, I, I, I heard today that correctional officers are very much in fear because of the placements and procedures that have been taking place for them, right? Like masks are, aren't available. And I mean, they're not available out here, right? Yeah. And so in a controlled setting where we're talking about social distancing and we're talking about, um, you know, people uh, um, six feet away, like that is very, very difficult to do. And so humanizing people, I also want to like throw out there we, to humanize correctional officers and, and the staff that are working in these facilities, because we're talking about human beings that are in threat of their lives. Let me ask you, Adnan, I mean, one of the things that I think that underlies our whole system of mass incarceration is the dehumanization of people that have done bad things, in particular, the dehumanization of people that have done really bad things like murder, sexual assault, things that land people in prison under our current constructs for lengthy periods of time. And so when we talk about these issues, you know, you having been formally incarcerated and doing the work that you're doing, Avi and I as public defenders working in the system, we obviously care about the people locked up on the inside. But I mean, the mere existence of our system of mass incarceration tells us that the majority of people don't care um, and almost might even be on board with the dehumanization or extra dehumanization of people locked up. You know, when people go to prison, people celebrate and people you know, look forward to them being sexually assaulted in prison. And mm. so my question to you or my comment that I want your response on is maybe there are people out there, maybe not listening to this podcast per se, but people out there that are thinking... We have a very significant carceral fan base from the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but people that are thinking, well, who cares? We have a lot of hate listeners. These they hate this. <laughs> these are terrible people that have done terrible things. They deserve to not have soap and they deserve perhaps to end up contracting the coronavirus and suffering you know like what are your 
what are your thoughts about that or what are your responses to people that either overtly think that or might be thinking that in their, you know, in their subconscious? Yeah, you know, I, I don't have a, I don't have an answer that will make, well, that will convert them into making incarcerated people more human and acceptable within their hearts, right? I think my response to them or my comment to them would be like, what is it, you know, it's a very individual question to that person. Like, what is it inside of you? And for me, it feels very sadistic. Like, it feels very much like what would they consider like a murderer's logic, right? Like, like sadistic and wanting pain and wanting um, um, to inflict harm on someone. And so, for me, it would more so be like to to for the people that are that you know you're, the hate people that are listening to this <laughs> podcast um, to really reflect on yourselves, right? And, and and what has happened to your humanity, yeah. right? To where where you feel that this is acceptable to harm someone um, deserving and not deserving, right? That, that's not even the question, but it's like, what is it within you that wants people to suffer, right? Yeah. One of the so that's things, a very individual question, I'm sorry. Yeah, I appreciate your response, and I think that that's a great um, great way to look at it and, and a great reminder, because you know, just like when we're talking about decarceration and stripping down our system and mass incarceration, everyone gets on board with not locking up the innocent, not locking up people getting um, people for marijuana offenses or nonviolent certain nonviolent offenders, but no, most people still can't wrap their head around um, either lowering prison sentences for or you know not sending people to prison for violent offenses, for sexual assault offenses, and things like that. So now in this in this movement to release people from our jails and our prison system because of the coronavirus. I think everyone is, not everyone, but people are getting on board with releasing nonviolent offenders, people so serving lower county jail sentences that are already going to get released, older offenders perhaps that aren't at risk. And I think the people that are going to be forgotten or neglected are the people that don't fit the, those categories, the people that are locked up for the violent offenses, the serious offenses, uh, the life offenses. And I'm even seeing that now in, our, in Santa Clara County and in the Bay Area counties where there is a collaborative movement between public defenders and prosecutors and courts to release people from our jails uh, that you know, might be vulnerable populations or close to finishing their, their sentences or are uh, being incarcerated before a, before a prelim or before, um, before a trial for nonviolent offenses. But... For example, I represent people accused of homicide offenses, some of whom are accused of being the actual killers, others that are accused of being the aid or the betters to certain offenses. And I even had a thought, maybe I'll try to get one of these guys out because of the corona pandemic. Like I had this, like this hoop dream that maybe I might be able to use this as a way to get my 18-year-old you know, client out who is accused of being an aid or a better to a homicide. But that's just a hoop dream. It's not at all going to be a... Mm -hmm possibility that person is going to be forgotten amidst this movement so as we have these movements to decarcerate and to let people out there is going to be this forgotten population that i think you and i are both talking or you me and avi are all talking about right now yeah man i i completely agree with that and and like all of my work is around people with lengthy or life sentences right um and i think one thing society just doesn't have information on who we're talking about letting out right uh so when we talk about people who have served um, life sentences or people who went in for, for murder, um, we're actually talking about a crime that happens very, very, it's, you know, the, like the frequency of murder is very, very low compared to the frequency of higher, of lower level offenses or nonviolent offenses, people say, right? Um, and so murder happens um, a lot, lot less. That's for one. And then we're also talking about for lifers or people who have committed murders, who have opportunity parole board and who have been out. I want to say since Governor Brown in his eight years, under his uh, governorship, there's been nearly 6,000 plus lifers, people who are serving life sentences out during his governorship, right? 6,000 lifers in California. And so the recidivism rate was less than, is less than 1% the last wow. time I checked, right? So we're actually talking about releasing the safest population. Like, you know, and, and, and this is not a COVID conversation, right? This is just more like, so, uh, uh, and it could be, you know, it is a COVID-19 no, conversation. No, it is, yeah. But because I'm going to ask because, you about it in a second, yeah. Yeah, because, because if we're talking about we, we need to lower numbers because mass incarceration and, and how fast COVID spreads and we're talking, again, social distancing and, and who do we release. And it, 
it's not about um okay this person committed murder this person didn't it's not about this about even if you look at the numbers like the safest population to release are the people who committed murder are the people who have committed acts of violence and have been sentenced to life or lengthy sentences that's just fact so so we it, yes we need to look at people at high risk um it, you know people that are um uh, 65 and over and all that people who are on their way home we can de definitely start releasing tons and tons of people but when we talk about when we're, when public is afraid to let out people because they're dangerous to society and because they've committed murder that that's just not factual like they are not actual dangers to society I do want to ask you about what can be done and what's being done in this moment in this kind of emergency state to address the things that you're describing. But before we do that, I wanted to just ask you, you know, you talked about what it's like on a, in quarantine um, in the prison system. Um, one of the things that's coming up now in our jail, and I'm imagining in the prison system too, is limited or uh, complete non-access to visitors. And so I, I just wanted to get a sense from you of what that's like for someone on the inside who um, is now, if they're on quarantine and they can't have um, visitors uh, come see them. Um, just I wanted to kind of get your sense of what that's like and then also couple that with uh, what that's like with the limited access to phones or the expensive costs of phone calls and things like that. So just talk about the social element of a quarantine um, that, that might be happening right now. Yeah, you know, for, for me as a person who's incarcerated, uh, unable to see my family, and especially if I'm seeing my family very consistently, right? If I'm near, if I'm local or, or relatively, my family lives relatively close and they come um, consistently, um, we all as a family unit depend on that, right? And so now we're talking about the, the mental health of people. And so again, the argument of, hey, this is bad that people inside are isolated and they can't visit their loved ones. And then let's just flip that, right? How many of our loved ones depend on coming to see us that are out here in our community? Um, and when I say loved one, I'm talking about, yes, a wife, um, a, a husband, a, a father, a mother. But what about children, right? Um, the, the depression rate on children. If even, you know, one thing we also have to realize is um, here we are doing, you know, doing the separation, social distancing and whatnot, and, and not going to school. Schools are shut off. Um, and we know, we know statistically that anti, people who are, who are antisocial, who don't have community or have access to community, one, the, the um, suicide rates go up, right? Two, um, uh, mass shootings or, and violence occur. And then, and three, like we have all sorts of depression and, and, and that, that go into your, your physical, uh, you know, heart diseases and blood pressure and whatnot. So there's different statistics that, that speak against and the, the harms of um, isolating and being away. And so now we're talking about children. We're talking about mothers. Um, like, like every, a lot of people have their families still, right? Like a lot of people have elder parents, and they're, they're afraid for them. They want to know how they're doing. On, on vice versa, uh, people are worried about their parents who are incarcerated. And so now we're talking about outside and inside people, not just people inside who are worried about not seeing their family. That is absolutely true. But again, people coming in and now being cut off from seeing people, um, that's terrible. I also want to say that that's also understandable, right? Like people cannot come in, but what other solutions are there? That's my point. Like, let's not just cut off visiting. Um, if we're going to just cut it off, let's, let's be smart about it. Let's find other ways to, to, cause we're essentially we're talking about communicating and we're talking about physically bodies removing each other from each other. Right. That's, yeah. that's one of the, one of the prevent preventive solutions that we were, we're told by Dr. Fauci or whatever. Um, and, and these experts, 
So what are some other options? The other option that prison has that's, that's foundational is a 15-minute phone call that your family has to pay for, collect call, um, every once a day. That's being taken away during quarantines because you don't have access to the phone. Now, some quarantines, um, the, the programs are modified, meaning, okay, you can come out to the phones. But think about the concept. And now, let me just frame it for you, at least in San Quentin. The building that I lived in was North Block for four years, right? There are 12 phones, literally phone boots, like old school phone boots, in San Quentin, in, in that building. There are 900 people, approximately, give and take, that live in that building. 900 people, 12 phones, every 15 minutes. They don't have disinfectant wipes. You don't have hand sanitizer, right? Th again, we're talking about like all these layers of problems that were not set up. So when you talk about communicating and, and family and not having visits, the second option, which is uh, uh, phones, that is a danger as well. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds crazy. And honestly, I don't think any solution is crazy right now because of the problem, right? When you look at the physical health, when you look at the mental health equally, right? Um, cell phones are not far-fetched solutions right now for me. There are, I went to Norway, they're allowing cell phones for incarcerated people, right? There's a way, you can get a burner, you can, you can do like a parent control to where you can only call two people, one, one person, two, two people, right? There's, way, if we want, there's ways to do it. You Video know, conferencing. Video conferencing, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's and, and those <clears throat> steps are, not, are, first of all, aren't in place, nor are they being taken from my understanding. Uh, could I ask about the, uh, a lot of people are interested in this whole hand sanitizer thing and that it has alcohol in it. Uh, Scott Heckinger was with us talking about how uh, people who are incarcerated in New York are producing the sanitizer, you know, at a pennies rate and then uh, kind of providing the public safety benefit. Uh, is the, What are your thoughts about revisiting? I mean, obviously you would agree that people who are in prison should have hand sanitizer, but uh, do you have a perspective on the uh, kind of cost-benefit analysis in terms of real risk of alcohol consumption. I mean, I know people make alcohol out of various things in the jail. Uh, I know that uh, in, in prisons and that they're disciplined for it. I don't know how frequent it is, but I imagine it happens from time to time. And so what I'm wondering is, you know, what are your thoughts about this whole alcohol ban? Yeah, the, the truth is, man... Um if you want anything in prison, you can have it, right? Like when I was in prison, if I wanted a cell phone, if I wanted real alcohol, if I wanted drugs, if I wanted, um, I don't, whatever, you name it. If, essentially, if I wanted it, I could, I, could, I, I could go get it from someone, right? That's the truth. And so when we talk about hand sanitizing, and yes, I have seen um, and I've heard the cases, and I don't want to say that's false. Like I personally have seen it. I personally like told, a lot of, told some of my colleagues like, you know, don't do that. That's you know, bro, you're stupid. Like, what are you doing? That's, you know, I've said that, so I've, I know that's, that can happen. Um, but I also want to say that alcohol, uh, when we're talking about, like, actually the biggest crisis right now is heroin and opioid in the prison system, right? Like, so alcohol is not a problem. Um, we're talking about cleaning. And there's always, like, we don't want to give them this because they can do this out of it. Right now, like, let's, if we can just focus on let's clean people, like, give them access to being clean and preventing this. Like, to, honestly, to me, if they want to get drunk and be in their cell, go ahead. There's free alcohol. Yeah, I can go to the store right now and buy alcohol, right? So I, I think that people should absolutely get hand sanitizers, hand sanitizers in prison because it's safe for us out here. Um, as far as the uh, cost benefit, can you ask that question again? Well, oh, I was just – no, I think you've answered it. Just in terms of, like, how, how much drinking is happening and does it – would it end? Or is it been, has, it, has drinking in prison been, you know, completed or eliminated? No by the hand sanitizer, you know, ban. And, and the, I mean, if, if you're, I mean, if you're incarcerated and you want to, if you want to have alcohol and you now have hand sanitizer, you're making a different choice, I would assume, right? Because you're going to need that hand sanitizer because we're in a pandemic. So, you know, maybe, you know, using fruits or other options for creating alcohol uh, would still, with the same meth, you know, the same kind of, you know, time-tested measures. Uh, you know, one thing, if we, if yeah. We really sit down, and if we really sit down and think about how to, you know, safely distribute it, um, those are, um, my point is, like, that can easily be done. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, I have one that's, like, a travel one, you know, and maybe I can, like, monitor an issue. I don't know if it's that serious to where the, the issue is alcohol, <laughs> the alcohol can be made out of it. Give everybody damn travel ones, and, and, and if you want to really monitor, monitor that shit, right? Like, there, yeah. you can do it. Like, you, there's, 
there's that's one of my biggest frustrations of like um in prison is there's always like what why won't it why will it not work yeah right versus why will it work? yeah you know this this point that you're making right how is it going to go wrong how are people going to you know how are these people who we want to punish going to take advantage of it or do something harmful sajid's comments earlier about kind of well, you know, we're talking about bad prison conditions and someone, you know, is going to say, like in the comment section of an article, you know, you, you shouldn't have done the thing or whatever, and therefore you're suffering. Well, COVID-19 and other, it's, it's, it's just, it's very salient in our heads that, you know, we're all thinking about it. Um, it really highlights how we're all tied together so much, you know, in this crisis. And you can't default to, well, what's this person going to do? How they're going to, what are they going to do wrong with it? No, this is like all of us protecting each other. The people who are incarcerated are, have the shared humanity that we have. We're all, you know, kind of tied together in one fabric, and we just have to kind of do things to look out for each other as in a national emergency. And so, like, everything changes. Everything changes. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, if you compare uh, – sorry, Saji, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Enough. I'm saying if you, if you just compare the, 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 the potential crisis that we're going to have from alcohol-related, uh, hand sanitizer, alcohol-related uh, uh, um, issues versus COVID-19. Um, that, that's just like, that just doesn't compute in my head equally, you know what I mean? And yeah. so, um, again, there's always these roadblocks and, and people's perceptions of deserving, not deserving, they committed a crime, they don't deserve hand sanitizer. Like those, sure, go ahead and say that, but you are at risk for, by saying that you are putting yourself at risk. Yeah, and that's, I guess, I, mean, I appreciate, Avi, the way you put it, and, and just to add to that, I mean, even if people don't consciously or subconsciously care for the humanity of the people that we're talking about, um, selfishly they should care for them because, uh, like you, Avi, you mentioned, um, if we don't get a handle on the epidemic on the inside or the pandemic on the inside, then it does affect us all out, out here. We're, we're all... Uh, in it together or, you know, kind of kind of go down with the ship together or keep it afloat. Um, and so, that, you know, there is a, a vested interest for everyone to care, regardless of their motivations. Yeah, you know, there's this uh, thread that came out from this guy called Ross McDonald on Twitter. It's Ross McDonald, MD. He's the chief physician of Rikers Island. And he has this thread that came out and you said something about a ship. So I just want to talk about it now. Among other things, he says, we will put ourselves at personal risk and ask little in return, but we cannot change the fundamental nature of jail. We cannot socially distance dozens of elderly men living in a dorm, sharing a bathroom. Think of a cruise ship recklessly boarding more passengers each day. A storm is coming, and I know that uh, what I'll be doing when it claims my first patient. What will you be doing? What will you have done? We have told you who is at risk. Please let as many out as you possibly can. Yeah, that's the chief physician of Rikers. You know, we don't normally see these types of these are not these are not normal times. We're gonna. That's a perfect. Uh, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. That was really poetic and powerful, um, Adnan. I think one of the the threads that Avi told me about yesterday was someone that you were maybe battling with on Twitter. Why Why isn't jail or isolation, quote-unquote, better for um, prisoners or people incarcerated than being out here in public. I mean, there are, there are, there are some people thinking that it, people in jail are better off because we are in this quarantine state, uh, that they are better off being on the inside than being out. What, what's, your, what's your thought about that? Yeah, from from what I remember, he was saying that the safe. He literally said that the safest places, safest place on on earth are prisons, from COVID nineteen. Right, and that's because there is no COVID nineteen in prisons because no cases have been reported of COVID nineteen in prison. This is yesterday, right? Right. And so I'm like, what? It, it just it just didn't. And mind you, can I can I? Just, so I just heard the uh, what Sean Hetching. Um, I can't say his last name right there. Mm-hmm. Heckinger, Scott Heck, yep. Scott Heck, and so um, he in there he talked about the whole concept of Twitter and what how he how he uses Twitter and and so I'm gonna be completely honest. Like I, I got out a year ago in January and um, got the Twitter account. Didn't understand social media at all. Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, none of that existed when I when I went in prison. Right? They didn't have cameras on phones yet in, in 2003, and so uh, or, or I wasn't aware of it. 
Um, so I get out to this. It was all about having small phones back then. Man, it, you, you wanted to have a small can. phone. Snake, yeah, Nokia. That was it. Nokia. You wanted to have the 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 thinnest possible no phone. Idea. You never wanted to even see it. Man, that, that, that this is, is now this is now 80s men, 90s 90s men, telling our listeners about phones. <laughs> yo yo, let me tell you about this band. Let me tell you about Hammer. I'll tell you about Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> a long lost legend, man. Um, but and also, so, so, and the reason I'm bringing this Twitter thing up is because um, I started learning, okay, Instagram and Facebook. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna post my work and, and, and do that. And then on Twitter, when, when my colleagues or, or, or my wife would be like, hey, you should put that on Twitter. You should really do Twitter. I just, I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand what it was about. I, I just didn't at all, right? But I had it and if I post something on Instagram, I'll use Twitter and just, without even understanding Twitter, I'll put it on Twitter, right? Um, it wasn't literally, man, until like three or four days ago when I started, when this COVID thing hit, I was so, I'm so uh, uh, in fear of what can happen and what probably will happen inside the prison that I was like, I'm just gonna like write about this. And, and, and so I just started Twitter like three days ago, even though you may have seen post me doing this in, in the past. Um, three Is that why you've ago. never answered my direct messages? man yeah, yeah. <laughs> welcome to twitter Adnan. yeah <laughs> so so i started to um and that's when i and, and i didn't even know i was battling this guy i just learned what that was like yesterday right and so but to me it was just it didn't make sense and, and Sajid, going back to uh what you're talking about him is like the safest place in in, in prisons are uh, on earth from COVID is prison and that's absolutely not true and, and he kept saying no like like um it is because we haven't found any cases and i'm like no listen man like like and all these points that I made about people not not saying that they're sick, um, they don't have the right test kits and and whatever. And then on top of that, there's like I said, sixty thousand people coming into our prison, yeah. in and out of our prisons, eight hours a day, um, different shifts, right? Are coming in and out of this prison, and so there's no way that I, I there's no way I can say that prisons are safe, and so um, the safest place on earth, and that's yeah. just where that was, yeah. So. Now turning to, I mean, we've already alluded to it a bit, and I, I um, we, you know, solutions. So, like, what, what can, especially on the prison level, like I understand at the at the jail level, certain things are being done as we speak um, between prosecutors and PA, uh, public defenders' offices, and, and judges are working together to try to uh, to release people from our our county jails. At the prison level, though. Um, at a place presumably like San Quentin or uh, higher level prisons where people are serving, like you said, uh, longer sentences for more serious offenses, violent offenses. Uh, what are you um, and other uh, advocates um, calling for at this, at this juncture uh, during this pandemic? Um, what, what, what can be done um, to help uh, hedge against what's happening? Yeah, man, that's the, that's the million dollar question, man. Um, what are the solutions? What can be done? Um, what, what is possible? There, there is a lot of red tape, right? Um, and, and so, and I, I want to be very, very fair and say that, you know, I've, I've criticized publicly about the prison system and the healthcare system, but what I, what I don't want to do is, is criticize the individuals who are within that system, right? And who are working hard and the doctors and the nurses and uh, even the correction officers, the sergeant, lieutenants, captains, wardens, um, the, the Secretary of, of Corrections, CDCR, people think that CDCR Corrections Secretary Ralph Diaz can just snap a finger and everybody will fall in information. And, and that is not true, right? He, he has red tape. And I spent a week in Norway with him and he's head of corrections, like I said, and he a whole week in another country every day with this individual. He genuinely cares, man. I, 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 that's coming from me. I genuinely, honestly believe that um, in my heart. But he has red tape. He, he, it's not just him making a decision about the, about his about the rest of the prison system. He has to work with um, the, the, the Department of, of Health. He has to work with all sorts of other agencies in this pandemic. Um, and so when we talk about solutions, I think the biggest thing I see is the problem of red tape. Um, the nurses and everybody's frustrated from what I'm hearing. Correction officers are frustrated. Correction staff um, are frustrated. Nurses, um, doctors at healthcare, med mental health physicians that are, that are in the prisons are very frustrated because what they want to do and how they want to help their they're unable to right but there are all small are small steps we can start taking now get them out of the way and then think of uh, you know kind of like filter system like okay let's get let's these are viable solutions 
for like you mentioned we need to minimize this mass incarceration crisis in relation to COVID, right? We can do it anyways, but right now we need to act now and act fast. And so, yes, releasing people. Um, the biggest question is like, who, who's deserving? Okay, we are, we're talking about 65 and over. Absolutely, yes, I agree. But I will also say if we're talking about people, not so much at um, 65 and over, but in the category of at risk, I had a, one of my good, good friends, 35 years old, autoimmune disease, right? Other people who are relatively young, 40, 50, um, not in the age of at risk, have a lot of um, uh, physical conditions that are that are very vulnerable um, to to die from from coronavirus. And so, when we talk about who we're releasing, we need to really, really start identifying. Okay, let let people at risk and what at risk really means out. On top of that, it doesn't even have to be at risk. You know what? If if you're like 2020, 2021, 2022, something like that, you have a release date, go, man. You know, seriously. Um, and then let's like looking at people who like seriously, like looking at people who have done long time and who are not a risk, who are, are not a, because a, a, that's what we're, we're coming down to now, right? It's like a public safety risk in terms of violence, right? People are going to be hurt and harmed. And I, you can, there are ways where, where you can identify people, um, however, which, you know, however you want to identify, I don't believe in the, the, the risk assessments either. So I don't want to get into advocating for people deserving, not deserving. My point is for right now, in this crisis, we have to be practical. Um, and so there are ways to release people. The other thing is the small stuff that my friends that I called me um, from in prison have, have asked me about, canteen, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a small thing, Can't, we need canteen because I want, I need food and I need, I need to buy hygiene, right? I need toothpaste. Uh, I don't know how long this is gonna last, right? I need to buy more soap. I need shampoo, uh, deodorant, um, um, clothes. Like who are washing, who's washing clothes? Uh, and how are they being washed and distributed? Can, do we have access to clean clothes if we're talking about um, um, cleaning and hygiene is a necessity right now, right? And so supplies are very important. Those are the small things. Um, then we, we talked about it earlier. We need to give people an opportunity, a consistent opportunity to call their family and their loved ones, right? Whether it's through video conferencing, uh, giving them people a uh, cell phone. I don't know what, you know. Safe too, safe, you said. A yes, safe way also. A, sa- a safe way to, to, to do that. Um, and there are like we we're, we're smart people, man. We can we can figure this out, right? Um, because those solutions are 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 available. Um, so so providing that, I know visits are not uh, visits cannot happen right now, unfortunately, unless you you do visits for selects for people who are, are six feet away. The visit visit rooms are made like that. They're they're jam packed, crowded. You literally are touching a person's knee and a family member next to you. That's how crowded these visit rooms are. Um, but but other options like cell phones or video conferencing are are are, are legit. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, man, I think that um, we need to look at the people who are providing um, uh, and lean on the people who are providing like the the healthcare, right? Like like the nurses and and the doctors and the physicians, uh, mental health um, 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 practitioner, whoever they are, they're coming into these prisons. We need to listen to them. Um, and, and you know, I will just say like on or off record, I don't know, but there's 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 someone who has reached out or has been talking to me, and this person is. It sees the daily practices and they are very frustrated. They're in the medical field. They're very, very, very frustrated. And and I think the frustration they mentioned, and I've been saying this forever, is like, like there's there's solutions. I feel so helpless. I can verbally just suggest them, um, but then there's so many, so much red tape that's stopping it. And I think we need to get rid of the red tape, but be practical, be smart, be safe. Um, but we need to act now. And and is is, I think there comes a point where um, you sit at the table. And discuss solutions for so long, like, like they're out there, just do them now. That, that's how yeah. I feel. Yeah. To um, you know, one good piece of good, great news in terms of prisoners is that Proposition Fifty Seven empowers the prison to release people after the completion of the uh, longest term of their sentence, the, or the base term, base term. Uh, without consideration of three strikes, right? Without consideration of enhancements, you know, the 20 year enhancements, 10 year enhancements, or alternative sentencing schemes. Uh, now that's a paper process. And I do not know uh, what the current grant rate is, you know, but it's, let's assume it's somewhere between 15 and 20% of people receiving early parole through the paper process. Hmm. So uh, that's a fantastic option, man. I, like, I love that you mentioned that. I didn't even, I didn't even uh, think about the Prop 57 angle and the legal uh, power they have. Um, another legal power is from the governor, right? Like yeah. legally, he has the power 
to act and, and either commute, release. There are legal ways for him to do that. And then, you know, and, and so I, I really feel like um, he can and should act now. Um, and the other thing was about the public's biggest fear is you're just going to release people. It's going to be chaos in the streets, right? Um, you're not arresting people. You're not, and you're releasing people from prison. This is a total apocalypse, and that's how people are thinking, right? But the truth I want, I want to let people know as far as people getting out of prison, people get out of prison every day. Tons of people get out of prison every day and come back to our communities, right? And so this is not, yeah, besides the, the numbers, it's not saying that we're going to let people out and they're going to just run, roam around the streets and, and we're going to like forget about them. No, the people who are the advocates and activists who are getting on these these mass calls um, are very, very smartly coming coming together, understanding resources, really, really practically thinking this through. And so I was on a call yesterday. And so it's not it's not so much the activist uh, community saying that, um, yes, they're saying we need to let people out. Um, and it's not opportunistic. I want to make sure people know that, that oh, wow, COVID-19 is happening. Here's an opportunity to end mass incarceration. Um, I kind of want to say yes and no to that. Um, but the primary is that this, this uh, pandemic is happening and we need to act now and releasing people is a solution. However, that's not where we're stopping. We are continuing that and, and we are reaching out, not reaching out, sorry, bringing uh, uh, re-entry um, people who are, who are in the re-entry space who can provide um, beds and housing and safe places for an X amount of numbers up and down California. Like all that stuff is being thought out. Right. So for people who are fearing the governor or people who are uh, Prop 57 um, um, opportunity to come out through Prop 57, I want people to know that there's a bunch of people up and down California that are looking at this and, and coming up with solutions, viable solutions to take care of people throughout the process through, across the board. Yeah. Adnan, um, before we finish up, just can you tell me, Avi, and our listeners ways for um, us to be a part of this advocacy? Uh, what we can we do uh, to be involved? Uh, who do we communicate with or who do we contact? Uh, are there resources available to, uh, for people to uh, be a part of this movement uh, that you're describing? I think the, um, the, the biggest resource, and, and I get this question a lot, and, and um, it's sad, like sometimes sad to answer because I think we people can't always get directly, directly involved, right? Like, be on that call. Um, we can't have a, a, a million some people on a call, right? So I, I get that. But I think the biggest thing that, that people can do is is um, get keep receiving information, right? This information is, I'm hearing that by tonight or tomorrow, there's going to be some type of like prison uh, COVID-19, like, like Facebook group um, to where information is provided. There's constant, follow the tweets, like, you know, the, the tweets and the people are posting about constant updated information. Like social media is our best friend right now. And information is very important. And then based on the information um, and based on what you can provide as a resource, right, whether it's you just not being that person that's saying, man, we should not release people. Um, they don't they don't deserve hand sanitizer, whether it's that, right, as simple as that, because that does absolutely matter. Public opinion uh, and mass public opinion to a person like a governor does absolutely matter and legislators, right? And that's why we have these laws. Um, so that's the very least you can do. And the other thing is, like, for, for, for you two, for example, and the other public defenders or people that are um, uh, in have law degrees and understand what they're doing, um, can start working together and, and putting together the law aspect of it and, and, and helping, um, you know, <laughs> district attorney offices in filing these things, right? Um, the other thing is if you're if you're a person who is uh, part of reentry, um, reach out, right? To, to, and then you'll get connected. If you're a person that can offer it, I know we can't go to work right now, but, um, you know, eventually people will start whenever, I don't know, we'll start getting back to work. And so the people that we're releasing will need will need um, work. And so eventually, and so if you, if you can offer a job down the line, you, you, you know, we need you as a resource. Um, so really, really everyone that's listening here, um, reflect on what you have available, what can you give, how can you provide, um, whether it's a job, whether it's, you know, do you have a, a secret bottle of hand sanitizer out here that you can give someone that's coming out just to be safe? I mean, think about it, it, it any solution is helpful. Um, and so, Reach out, tweet it out. That's the best way for us to connect. Um, that we, that way we know you're out there, uh, and then we can start plugging in uh, the right solutions and, and the right resources for people that need it the most. Awesome. Perfect. And for for our listeners, they can follow you on Twitter and engage. With oh you yeah. There, uh, at a con k h a n fourteen thirty seven, and then also follow uh, restore. Um, 
restore underscore Cal, which is the Twitter handle for restore justice uh, that is on the front lines of doing this and, and so many other uh, amazing pieces of uh, advocacy for uh, people that are incarcerated and and for our justice system in general. All right. Well, Adnan Khan, thank you so much for coming on Aider and Better, for talking to us, and we hope that you will come back and talk to us more about other stuff, as we've already twisted your arm about. Uh, and everybody, thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you.